Let me tell you, I'm definitely getting uh, some bad vibes from everything right now. It definitely feels like in the span of a few days, uh, we went back to something. I mean, it's already like two or three days into this. This already feels like a kind of cliche talking point. But, you know, everyone's pointing out how much the past few days have felt like March of 2020. I would add to that, though, that a lot more people, uh, just anecdotally, a lot more people uh, seem to be getting COVID. And I guess the numbers bear that out as well. I mean, one of the ironies of the pandemic, if it is an irony, is that in the first, uh, you know, few months and in, in those first few weeks, especially when I think, you know, most of us were, were probably taking the most precautions, the actual cases were quite low. It wasn't until, you know, the following winter i guess that they really really started to spike when there was kind of the second and then the uh, and then the third wave which i guess was last spring but uh, here we are despite all the vaccinations we seem to be in a fourth uh, covid wave so not getting good vibes from most things right now uh, i guess Welcome back to Michael and us. Stay uh, stay safe and healthy out there, everyone. Yeah, I've been helping an ailing relative. So I just look out the window and see that stuff's happening and think, oh, I guess something's happening outside. I mean, you say that as if uh, as if you've been disconnected from the internet in some way, which would be, which is cute. It's cute of you to suggest that. But anybody who's following you on Twitter knows that that's very much not the case. I've been more online than ever, actually, because of my current situation. I mean, my ailing relative is watching the TV all the time. So uh, actually, I do hear a lot about this Omicron variant. Would you would you believe it? <laughs> and in a way, I'm kind of grateful because it's got cable news to stop talking about January 6th for a couple <laughs> of goddamn seconds. <laughs> Well, the anniversary is coming up, so brace yourself. It's going to be full spectrum dominance for January 6th on the one year anniversary. I can't wait. But it's true that I've been very heavily online these past couple of weeks. And what is more online right now than NFTs? We all love NFTs. We're all getting in on the digital art market. We love NFTs, don't we, folks? We're all getting our collections. We've all got yeah. our little uh, virtual galleries that we're curating right now. Yeah, if uh, you've been listening to the show for, for a while now, you know that Will and I are, are pretty into the blockchain. We're pretty into crypto. Will's more of an Ethereum guy. I'm an OG Bitcoin head. We're, we're, we're for all that stuff uh, on this podcast. And I want to thank our partner uh, and sponsor, Elon Musk, for uh, helping to make it possible. You know, they say that Van Gogh only sold two paintings in his lifetime. So folks like me and Luke, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're getting in on the ground floor for the next Van Gogh, uh, which, which will be whoever Which is like is... a pixelated picture of like a monkey or something. But actually, I have in the past uh, week or so started to seriously consider getting one NFT, ironically, uh, because <laughs> it, it's come to my attention that there is a new line of official, <laughs> that is right, official NFTs for the movie Rifkin's Festival. I w okay, how is that real? Because I was just about to make the joke like, oh, well, are you going to get a Rifkin's Festival NFT? Are you serious? S yes. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so this requires a little bit of background for our broad audience. Rifkin's Festival is the name of Woody Allen's most recent movie. It is the movie that Woody Allen made in Europe after he was canceled in America. Uh, I, I have Will seen is it. the only person who has seen it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen it and my face uh, melted to ash like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
uh, but but no, folks, I've I've seen it. It's not very good. Just the briefest of brief plot synopses is that Wallace Shawn plays a disgruntled film studies professor who goes with his movie publicist wife to Europe, where she is squiring a hot young politically conscious filmmaker. But Wallace Shawn uh, is not into all this stuff. He is constantly dreaming himself being in movies by the old masters, Bergman, Fellini, people like that. It's like Midnight in Paris, but for movies and a little bit more reactionary. It sounds like uh, a little bit of Stardust memories in there as well. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. So for obvious reasons, the movie has had trouble finding a distributor in North America, but it but it did just find a distributor. So it is getting a, a sort of minor theatrical and streaming release, I think at the end of December or maybe in January. But what's really great is whoever is distributing it actually, and I spent like an hour trying to figure out, is this actually real or is this a bit? They actually have, uh, you can find it on Twitter, at Rifkin's Fest NFT. <laughs> they, some, of, some of the things you can get are, uh, you can get a Woody Allen NFT with VIP night at the premiere. You can get a bronze ticket. You can, oh, so this is, the, this is the really good one. A golden ticket lottery every quarter that entitles you to 12% of French box office plus royalties of the movie for the next decade. That comes with your NFT. Yeah, and that that one might actually pay off. I don't know. I don't know how <laughs> popular he is in France anymore, but I think he's I think he's more popular there than he is in the US. So. so you can buy a digital image that is exclusively yours that guarantees you 12% of Rifkin's Festival box office returns in France. This is what you're telling me. That is correct. I mean, what a time to be alive. I think I think we should do it. I think we should pool some of our Patreon money. And there are going to be people listening to this who say, "Oh, you don't want to take money from a Woody Allen movie." I say, "Yes, I do." Let's let's do this. It should go to us. Well, that'll be the next frontier of this is that buying NFTs will be pitched as a form of activism. I mean, I'm sure that's already happening, but <laughs> but like a lot of activism, it'll really just be, a, you know, a form of consumerism or investment where like you're taking down the thing but it's actually just by profiting off of it <laughs> so I, of course like everyone i was wondering how can this this can't be real this has to be a bit but no there's an article in digital journal called beyond nft day move company is building the future of movies and entertainment this article is a profile of mr jonathan partouche founder and president of Demove nft it says he's an entrepreneur, scientist, and security engineer with, a, with wide experience in cybersecurity and regulatory compliance. The article goes on to say, NFT is still in its primary stages as digital experiences such as markets, social networks, exhibitions, games, and virtual worlds are built. Their usage scenarios will expand. Now it quotes this Mr. Jonathan Partouche fellow. He says, Take Woody Allen's new movie, Rifkin's Festival NFT Project, for example. You can get a movie ticket. Participate in movie premiere with Woody Allen. It's grammatically wonky, this sentence. Participate movie premiere with Woody Allen, it says. And other actors, or even share box office revenue and royalties by purchase NFT. Okay, so he he doesn't know how to spell. But anyway, that's, that's in this article from digitaljournal.com. I think the thing that I really want to emphasize after reading that is this man, Mr. Jonathan Partu, founder and president of Demove NFT, who looks to be in his 20s based on this photo, he or someone on his team had to sit Woody Allen down and explain to him the concept of an NFT. Because Woody Allen, if you know anything about him, you know he maintains very tight control of all aspects of his films, all aspects of their productions. This man sat him down and told him what an NFT is and said, this is going to be great. This is going to help you. 
you're having trouble right now. And I think these Rifkin's Festival NFTs are really going to help make you relevant. We've invented a way to disrupt cancel culture, Mr. Allen. <laughs> and and Woody Allen must have said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I speaking as somebody, you know, who, who thinks a lot about investing, you know, uh, is invested heavily in, in multiple cryptocurrencies, there seems to be a pretty obvious flaw in the idea of a, a Rifkin's Festival NFT as an investment vehicle, because all those things you mentioned that come with it, you know, like at first you're thinking, oh, hey, this NFT actually has all these like things bundled into it. You're getting this like, you know, this whole suite of investments and you know, also, you know, kind of purchases that come along with it. Like you get tickets to the premiere, you get a share of the box office returns. So it helps you be, you know, like a VIP spectator of this like awful movie that nobody's seen, but also, you know, an investor in it, a capitalist. But all of those things are going to be pretty ephemeral, right? I mean, not just because it's a bad movie, but because like, you know, there aren't like futures in the French box office returns of <laughs> Rifkin's Festival. And isn't the whole point of these things that you you sink money into them like they're, you know, it's just a casino, right? These are speculative investments with like little to no use value, except as speculative investments, if you can call that a use value. And the idea is, you know, you put some money in one of them and maybe it becomes, you know, if you're an early adopter and it's one of the ones that, you know, is a hit, then you make a ton of money. But that's clearly not going to happen with like Rifkin's Festival NFT, unless there are somehow like a million other Will Sloan-esque ironists out there who are all going to invest ironically in the Rifkin's Festival NFT and make it go through the roof. And then, of course, Elon Musk will get in on it and it'll be game over. Yeah, I mean, you're just a very short-sighted person, Luke. I mean, it's the Christmas season right now and you'll see like movie theaters all over the country are showing, you know, the hits like Die Hard, It's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, all those movies. Like those are movies that play every year in movie theaters. And I think Rifkin's Festival has that potential <laughs> just before we leave this topic one last thing i want to say about it is if you go to the official rifkin's festival twitter page you'll see that it links to a discord channel which is the official i swear to god the official rifkin's festival nft discord channel you can chat with your fellow rifkin heads this is where it, <laughs> this is where it really seems like a bit uh, anyway, I've been very active in the forum. I think a lot of uh, people who, who listen to my podcasts or people I've met on Twitter are also active in the forum. We've been having a lot of really fun conversations about how much we hate the mediocre but politically conscious filmmaker Philippe. We've been talking a lot about how you have to embrace tradition and reject modernity like, like Rifkin does. So... <laughs> So I encourage everyone, join us. The Rifkin community is thriving. <laughs> well, it's safe to say that this podcast has melted my brain many times over at this point, but I confess I did not have Rifkin's Festival NFT on my Michael and Us bingo card. So consider my brain melted once again. Now, I suspect we're going to go back in that direction again when we get to our movie this week. Uh, but there were a few other things I wanted to talk about off the top, current events wise. I have to say, this did feel like a, a kind of pivotal week for the Biden administration, just in terms of things going wrong and the kind of uh, narratives that we were served in the early uh, months of this year becoming less and less sustainable. I mean, it really was a week of greatest hits for the Democrats in general. Uh, you had this great Nancy Pelosi thing around the controversy about really political insider trading. I mean, basically this idea that members of Congress, their spouses and their staff should be allowed to 
own and trade stocks, you know, which I think in an even remotely functioning democratic polity, it would be completely non-controversial to say that if you are charged with overseeing and managing an economy and like setting the rules under which it's regulated, you shouldn't be able to own and trade bits of it. I mean, the potential for corruption if you're a member of Congress or a senator or something and you own stocks is pretty obvious. And I mean, we did have these cases early on in the pandemic where it turned out a bunch of senators who'd gone to a, a confidential briefing about the economic impacts of COVID. I mean, guess what they did? They went out a couple days later and they sold off a whole bunch of the stock that they owned. I mean, Pelosi, uh, who who made the absolutely incredible uh, remark, this is a free market and we are a free market economy. They should be able to participate in that. Which I actually kind of like moments like this. You know, liberals are so often just these kind of bloodless technocrats in how they self-present. When you get hit with a pure dose of ideology like that from someone like Nancy Pelosi, I actually, in a kind of perverse sort of way, quite like it. I like when the ideology comes through. Um, but it's incredible for Pelosi especially to say this because she is obviously among one of the richest members of Congress. I mean, I think she's ranked 15th overall according to the most recent data I could find. And, uh, you know, her husband has holdings and all these things. You know, uh, Netflix, Facebook, Disney, Slack, Visa, Salesforce, PayPal, Tesla, you know, it goes on and on and on. So no need to belabor that. But, uh, you know, that's one thing that happened. Uh, You also had the announcement that the administration wants to make it a priority, a priority to restart student debt repayments. So just as a fourth wave is starting, and you know, there may even be lockdowns, we don't know yet, student debt repayments are going to start up again. This is, uh, I guess, last week, but I think a really extraordinary moment. And for me, I mean, for me, there have been many nails in the coffin to the idea of Biden as FDR or something. I mean, the idea that the Biden presidency could be transformative is not one that I've ever really bought into. You know, I think there was a feeling, uh, even on certain parts of the left, at the early stages anyway, that if nothing else, the Democrats and the people around Biden had kind of learned from the experience of Obama and kind of realized that they needed to kind of go bigger and do things a little differently. I mean, something like this next story to me is really the nail in the coffin, uh, even for that idea. And uh, because it's a week or so old, people may have heard of this, but Jen Psaki delivered one of her patented uh, Psaki bombs at a White House press conference, uh, this time in response to a reporter from NPR who asked a very reasonable series of questions about why the United States isn't just going to make COVID COVID testing free, right? Because if you go out and you buy these things at a pharmacy or something, they can cost as much as $12. And obviously, if you're getting tests a lot, you know, that can really add up. And, you know, for a lot of people, even spending $12 once is going to be a disincentive if they have symptoms or, you know, you know, especially if they're mild, they're, they're going to think, well, I'm not going to spend $12 on that when I got to make rent or whatever. Now, so Mara Liaison from uh, NPR asked Jen Psaki a series of questions. And her response, I thought, was absolutely incredible. Uh, Last week, obviously, the president explained some ramp up in testing, but there's still a lot of countries like Germany and the UK and South Korea that basically have massive testing free of charge or for a nominal fee. Why can't that be done in the United States? Well, I would say first, um, you know, we have uh, eight tests that have been approved by the FDA here. Uh, We see that as the gold standard. Uh, Whether or not all of those tests would meet that standard is a question for the scientists and medical experts, but I don't suspect they would. Uh, Our objective is to continue to increase accessibility and decrease costs. Now, there are so many obvious problems with this, and it strikes me, and I I mean, I hope uh, our American listeners will grant me this tiny bit of uh, Canadian privilege But it strikes me as the most quintessentially American of, well, non-solution solutions to a problem like this. 
instead of just doing the thing, like recognizing that there is a basic public or social need, having the government just do something about it. Like, okay, yes, we will pay for free COVID tests. There has to be this insanely convoluted market solution where the government teams up with big business and then creates this elaborate system of like reimbursement through your private health insurance, which like ironically is the most like headachy and bureaucratized way of getting a rebate for something like this. And of course leaves out the 28 million or so uh, people who don't have uh, a private health insurance plan. Uh, It was actually just announced uh, yesterday. This is from the New York Times. The administration has already said that the plan will not provide retroactive reimbursement for tests that have already been purchased, which means that any tests you buy for the holidays will not be covered. So I can't remember who said it, but someone on Twitter remarked like, you know, it takes real ingenuity to design public policy that people will hate this much. And I think that's (laughs) absolutely true. I mean, they're they're presented with the most simple and obvious solution, which as uh, that reporter from NPR pointed out, is is just what other countries are already doing. And something else I really like about Jen Psaki's response is how kind of undergirded by this just presumption of American exceptionalism there is. She's sort of, I mean, you know, it's it's spin, but she's sort of saying like, hey, well, we have much higher standards here and that's why we can't just like make tests free and give them out to people. It's because the made in the USA tests are better. I mean, give me a break. And I guess just moving on to the uh, piece de resistance here, we're still waiting for more details on this, but, you know, I saved the best for last. I mean, the Build Back Better bill, which represents effectively, I mean, it's it's where most of the so-called Biden agenda is. And of course, as we've talked about on previous episodes, you know, I've been pretty obsessed with this whole saga it's already been radically cut down, right? I mean, what began as a series of, you know, in relative terms, pretty ambitious and uh, in some ways quite social democratic reforms was kind of whittled down again and again and again. You know, they passed this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, and now what they're saying is they don't think they have the votes to get this through the Senate. It's obviously passed through the House a few weeks ago. And now they're going to focus really hard on voting rights, which, I mean... Uh, voting rights is important, but if they don't have the votes in the Senate to deliver Build Back Better, I have no idea how they, you know, they're not going to pass the For the People Act, I don't think, which is the uh, the main piece of voting rights legislation um, that probably needs to be passed in order to prevent what Trump tried to do last time, you know, a year ago from actually working in the future. All kinds of awful voter suppression and gerrymandering going on at the uh, state level right now, and something like the For the People Act is potentially a remedy to it. I would be very surprised if the Democrats passed that. And uh, what it signals to me is that ahead of the midterms, uh, what they're really doing is shelving any hope of uh, passing the lion's share of their domestic agenda and then, you know, pivoting to voting rights because message wise, that'll give them a platform for the standard, you know, vote blue no matter who arguments ahead of um, the midterms. Everything is awesome right now, folks. Let me tell you, it's uh, it's pretty great. Um, I just want to quote once uh, from friend of the show and uh, my Jacobin colleague, Bronco Markatich, who is really one of, uh, you know, the world's leading scholars on Biden. And he wrote a piece this week about this chain of events called Joe Biden's obsession with bipartisanship doomed his presidency from the start. Bronco writes, of the many themes that thread their way through Biden's history, two stick out. One is the vocal hostility to non-military deficit spending and obsession with government debt that he was known for during his long career in the Senate. The other is his almost total inability to stand up to the right, usually by being steamrolled by Republican negotiators, a failure he's then tended to cast as the noble act of compromise or in the form of a hokey belief in bipartisanship for its own sake. 
It's that second one that led Biden to chide people for blaming Watergate on the Republican Party. I mean, I know just to stop for a second, I know that we knew this already, but isn't it just funny to think that like Biden was in the Senate, like when Watergate was like in the news and he was around to have a bad take on it. That is so funny to me. Uh, It's that second one that led Biden to chide people for blaming Watergate on the Republican Party to facilitate the right wing takeover of the Supreme Court and to serve as Mitch McConnell's go to doormat whenever the Senate Republican needed to extract concessions from the Obama administration, and it's what led to this failure now, which could well prove the undoing of his entire presidency. Build Back Better's failure can be traced directly to Biden's decision in April to drop everything and to try to get Republican sign-on for something, anything, following the successful March party-line vote that passed the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. At that time, Biden was riding high. The pandemic was trending down. The economy was rebounding as vaccines were rolled out. Biden had just signed a major and popular piece of legislation within less than two months, and the subdued, normal nature of his White House was a welcome respite from the wall-to-wall craziness of four years of Trump. All of it, as well as a full-on love affair with the political press, combined with the customary new president polling bump to give Biden an approval rating of 54% by the end of March. It's the kind of position most presidents nowadays can only dream of being in, and the leading lights of Biden's party signaled that they learned from their mistakes under Obama, whose fruitless month-long quest for bipartisan buy-in on his major policy items had nearly derailed his presidency. And of course, we know what happened next. So as you can probably tell from the tone I just read that passage in, I mean, I am feeling a little bit self-satisfied with all this. I hope uh, I hope you can all permit me that. I really have never uh, felt that the Biden presidency was going to be anything much more than what seemed obvious from Biden's you know whole history and his voting record and his uh, public statements both before and during and after the election. I, I obviously don't relish being right, right? It would be great if uh, the six trillion or even the three and a half trillion dollar version of this bill had passed. I never thought it was going to. And I think Jacobin was probably one of a handful of places in the entire U.S. media you know, where you were allowed to advance a counter narrative to the Biden is FDR thing, which was really wall to wall. I mean, it's already this already feels very long ago, but I mean, as recently as probably four months ago, six months ago, eight months ago, there were really intelligent liberal and left liberal and progressive writers, you know, with bylines in, in big places, writing kind of long form magazine pieces about how, you know, we were living through this unique moment of progressivism that was going to usher in, you know, a change in uh, the relationship between American citizens and their government and that kind of thing. Very similar, by the way, to uh, if you go back and you read the kind of punditry from 2009 when Obama took over, very similar stuff you could find in The New Yorker and places like that. And, you know, I've been skeptical of all of it from the beginning. And here we are on December 18th and uh, Build Back Better is being shelved. So I don't relish being right. But just, I suppose, as somebody who, uh, you know, makes a living writing about politics, you know, it is nice when your judgments about things are vindicated, uh, even if they're vindicated for the worse in the actual real world. There's this wonderful ambient feeling of hopelessness right now, just hopelessness <laughs> and frustration and sadness. And I know a lot of the problems that the Biden presidency is having are comparable to the ones that the Obama presidency had. And the impact of that is compounded by the fact that Obama was very uniquely talented as a spokesman, as a storyteller, as somebody who could sort of narrativize the current moment. 
Now, he was obviously a man of his time. He was narrating the moment in a moment that was maybe more receptive to the story he was telling than it would be now. Nevertheless, if he were the president, he would still be doing a better job at it than Joe Biden is. I think a lot of the ambient hopelessness comes from the fact that, you know, no legislation is being passed and we can't even get a guy who's telling a good story about it. Can't even can't <laughs> even talk about how, well, this is part of the four dimensional chess on the long arc of progress. You know, <laughs> he's very visibly a symbol of American decline. Yeah, I think that's true. And again, that's something that seemed quite obvious to me from the beginning, but that's not how he's been written about uh, throughout much of this past year. I mean, I think with Biden, there was very much this kind of only Nixon can go to China type argument you kept seeing where, you know, it's like if only Nixon can go to China, then, you know, only Joe Biden can pass a second New Deal. Now, in fairness to Biden, obviously, just vis-a-vis the analogy you just made, like Obama had a much bigger congressional majority, right? At one point in 2009, Obama actually had 60 votes in the Senate. So a filibuster-proof majority. And, you know, his signature piece of domestic legislation was a health care reform bill, which basically inaugurated, like, the dreams of conservative think tanks in the 90s. So uh, would Obama be uh, be doing better than Biden? I don't know. I kind of want to stick up for Biden a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But I think you're absolutely right that the ambient kind of, um, I mean, hopelessness isn't quite how I would put it. It's its the ambient circularity and repetitiveness of everything, which I suppose can elicit, you know, feelings of kind of hopelessness or frustration. You see a lot of people being blackpilled, a lot of people being jokerfied, an increasing sense of nihilism on the timeline. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I won't pretend I didn't uh, feel some of those things in the responses I got to my recent article. That was the article in the Washington Post post was it not which was uh which was on the covid response that's right so this is an argument that you know i've been trying to make in one way or another for i don't know six eight months uh i don't know time is pretty confused right now but you know this argument around vaccines and patents if you're a subscriber to our patreon you can go back and listen to my interview with Stephen baranyi who's done some of the best reporting in the prospect guardian new york times and elsewhere on the issue of intellectual property rights surrounding vaccines we also had an episode featuring an interview with Corey doctor about this uh, which you can find on our patreon as well But, you know, one of the things that has really struck me since vaccination started, and I guess uh, really going back even before that, when they were kind of first being conceived and developed, is that if you were to explain the basic facts of a pandemic and uh, the existence of vaccines to, you know, a child of average intelligence... I think they would be able to come up with the idea that like the best solution to a global pandemic is to just manufacture as many vaccines as possible and distribute them to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And yet, you know, similar to this thing with Jen Psaki and the uh, free COVID tests or rather the, the absence of them, I mean, the quote unquote global response to the pandemic and to vaccination specifically has been this just absolutely bureaucratized market led disgrace. You know, it's imperiled things for everybody. I mean, it's there's a lot of talk about vaccine apartheid, which is, is quite warranted, because if you're in a poorer country, the number of vaccines that have been distributed in low income countries is obviously much, much lower than in wealthy countries. As per the most recent data, only 7.1% of people in low income countries have even received a single dose. But the thing is, the vaccination status quo isn't even good for you know citizens in wealthy countries with much higher levels of vaccination. Because the thing about a pandemic, I mean, especially with this, this Omicron variant, which is by all accounts much more infectious than Delta or any of the things that came before it, is that even with the vaccines, you know, it'll just continue to spread unless you have kind of something approaching global herd immunity or a m- much higher levels of vaccinations all throughout the world, it's going to keep spreading. 
And the main obstacle, uh, as I see it, to the manufacture of more vaccines is just that a handful of private companies uh, have been allowed to hoard the know-how for them. There's all kinds of obvious problems with that. I mean, there's a lot of public subsidy, public research that enabled the production and creation of these vaccines in the first place. But even if that weren't the case, what's more important? vaccinating the global population so this thing can end or protecting the profits of a handful of pharmaceutical companies. And judging by at least a a few of the comments, shall we say, uh, from readers uh, of uh, my Washington Post article, it's the latter. (laughs) I I had a pretty astonishing experience recently when, you know, I don't get invited on a lot of centrist podcasts, but I was on this one called uh, The Purple Principle, I guess, uh, early last month. I don't want to dunk on them. Uh, They were very nice. We had a really good discussion. But uh, something that didn't make it into the final cut uh, was this conversation we had about patents and vaccines. And, you know, I made the same basic case to them that I just did to you, Will. And I was astonished that one of the hosts came back to me with this, you know, I think very paint by the numbers argument about like, well, if, you know, we violate the sanctity of intellectual property, then these companies won't have an incentive to innovate. Uh, And... (laughs) I am just pulling my hair out at this point. I don't know how many more ways there are to make this argument. You know, if you go back to the 1940s, uh, during the Second World War, the War Production Board in the United States, this is, you know, immediately after the the New Deal. And, you know, obviously during the war, there was considerable embrace of economic planning, activist government, that kind of thing. Uh, The War Production Board in the United States during the Second World War essentially cast aside a ton of restrictions surrounding intellectual property rights. There was this guy, Albert Elder, who was colloquially referred to as the United States' penicillin czar at that time. And he said that they needed to focus on, quote, the efficient harnessing of the know-how recently developed so that they could manufacture as much penicillin as possible and distribute it as widely as possible. Now, to that end, the War Production Board compelled uh, not just any pharmaceutical company, it literally compelled Pfizer to give up the knowledge for a special fermentation method involved in the making of penicillin. And after they did that, uh, there was a more than tenfold increase in the production of penicillin over the next few years. So by the same token, there is a ton of unused production capacity right now that could be taken up if these companies were forced to share their patents. There was a report actually uh, this summer which suggests that the United States government, by way of its various collaborations with the pharmaceutical industry, already has the know-how necessary to manufacture vaccines and could just make it public. Anyway, I mean, it's worth saying that even if there was an upheaval of the current intellectual property rights regime, I mean, it's not like we would just instantly be able to manufacture more vaccines right away and the pandemic would just end. But this week, uh, with the direction of travel, with things heading where they seem to be headed, it really does seem plausible to imagine that there will just be a version of this every single year until the big pharma monopoly on these patents and these vaccines uh, is finally broken. So, yeah, everything's awesome. I love this song! Everything is awesome. On February 7th, only one word describes the 3D event of the year. Awesome! Yeah! This is my jam. The Lego Movie, rated PG. Everything is awesome. In recent months, we've been talking a lot about movies and cultural artifacts that are these intellectual property soups. Movies where Bugs Bunny is playing basketball and the penguin is in the audience, or content in which Goofy and Homer Simpson have a drink at Moe's Tavern. And, you know, obviously there are many precedents for this over the years. Uh, There was Who Framed Roger Rabbit being a prominent example. But I think 
think the one that really birthed the modern renaissance of this sort of genre is 2014's The Lego Movie. So we had to get to it. And I put it on this morning, fully expecting, you know, I saw it when it came out, but I put it on this morning, fully expecting, now that I have my Michael and us, they live glasses on, to just hate it, hate everything it stood for. God tell you, I really enjoyed watching this movie. <laughs> I don't know if you agree or not. I thought it was uh, very clever. I thought it was very well made, quite funny. Every year at the Cannes Film Festival, there's this parallel event called the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity, which is held for the advertising industry. They give awards to the best commercials and other sorts of ads that come out every year. This movie, I think, should have won every single award at the Cannes Lion <laughs> International Festival of Creativity. It's This is the greatest commercial ever made. It's, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Will and I very much use a Rawlsian method for this podcast. So we at least try to apply a kind of veil of ignorance uh, before we come into these and not discuss our various reactions to the movies that we watch uh, until we're actually on mic. And of course, it's a lot easier to do that now that we do the lion's share of these over Zoom. We used to watch them all in person, but, you know, COVID has largely put a stopper on that. But yes, uh, I had a very similar experience uh, as you. So less people think that uh, this is just, you know, groupthink on the part of uh, your beloved two co-hosts. No, we watched this film independently. I did not talk to Will about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's good. I mean, there's a few things I appreciate about this movie. I mean, for one thing, the animation is fantastic. It looks really, really cool. And such a beautifully realized Lego world, like the imagination of how a Lego ocean would look. Yeah, what does it look like when there's like fire in the Lego world, when something burns down? And they got it exactly right. The thermodynamics that they've been able to do and just the internal logic of this Lego universe is very cleverly and beautifully done. They had to invent like a new kind of physics to make the animation (laughs) in this movie work. And, you know, it cost uh, $65 million or something like that. And I would say that it's worth it. So the animation is one thing I appreciate. Another thing I appreciate about it, and this is like, I know this is setting the bar pretty low, but this is a kid's movie and... Unlike a lot of movies that are being made today, this knows it's a kid's movie, okay? (laughs) I feel like when we've watched movies in this vein for the podcast before, you know, particularly things in kind of the superhero genre or adjacent to that, a lot of these movies don't understand that they are just movies whose characters are like animated toys that, you know, are moving around a giant kind of sandbox. And really, they have no subtext or deeper meaning. They're just these kind of like soulless bonanzas of CGI pyrotechnics or whatever. And, you know, they often have this very self-serious quality, even when they're full of post, post, post ironic, uh, self-aware soy banter or whatever, like even if they've undergone full Joss Whedonification. This movie shares a lot of things in common, just structurally, I guess, and narratively with a movie like Ready Player One, Space Jam, A New Legacy, things like that. But I don't think there's anything really insidious about it, even if in many ways it represents culturally an object very similar to all those other things. I do think there's one other point to be made about this kind of emerging theory uh, we've been developing of the sort of Ready Player One-ified film franchise. There are really, I think, two key characteristics. The first, which Will already mentioned, is just the kind of mashup of different corporate properties. That's one thing. But the thing is, that's existed for a long time, right? The original Space Jam is like teaming up uh, the Looney Tunes and, you know, Bugs Bunny with Michael Jordan. The second feature, which makes something like Space Jam A New Legacy or the Lego Movie or Ready Player One or the uh, upcoming Buzz Lightyear movie distinct, 
is that in the world of these films, the fictional characters you're seeing are actually playing commercial property versions of themselves. The commodity character of these universes is now an explicit part of them. Like whatever artifice once separated WB or Disney or these big, you know, uh, entertainment conglomerates from the fictional universes they own has completely collapsed. Uh, we talked about this on a recent episode about the uh, Disney Plus special Simpsons and Plus Aversion. One of the sequels to this movie, the Lego Batman movie, conceives of the Lego Batman as being this accumulation of all the Batman products that have ever been created. So in that movie, the Joker is the villain. And there's an early scene where they're saying, what's your big plan this time? Are you going to put a bomb on the two ferry boats? No, I'm not going to do that. Are you going to have a parade in Gotham City where you have the poison gas? No, I'm not going to do that. So he's the villain from both the Christopher Nolan and the Tim Burton movies simultaneously. (laughs) And then Batman. Batman, you know, there's a bit where they reference like the 1940s serials or they reference the 60s TV show. He's all of those Batman. This movie does that too. And I think it's kind of a clever way to render these characters. Well, I have so much to say about this, but I think just to like set the stage a little bit, let's run through the plot of the Lego movie. So we have everything necessary on deck to talk about it. Well, the prime antagonist of the film is Lord Business, who's a sort of, (laughs) he's not, he's not Trumpian yet. He looks a little bit more like Mitt Romney. He's the big brotherish ruler of this Lego universe, which when we first encounter it looks like a sort of gentrified utopian version of the real world. And it's run very orderly. There's a a rigidly enforced monoculture where everybody listens to the same music, everyone watches the same TV, everyone buys the same Starbucks-like coffee. And the everyman protagonist is a character named Emmett, voiced by Chris Pratt, who is the ultimate everyman, the middle of the middle of the middle. He's a, and he's a worker, importantly. He works in this big construction site, one of many businesses businesses owned by Lord Business, who the film makes clear is this business magnet who also has his hands in politics and in the media. So all the estates have collapsed into one in this universe. Yeah, and the population of the city even has this song they sing, this kind of, uh, you know, anthem that at the start of the film anyway is meant to be symbolic of the kind of brainwashed and monopoly enforced collectivism of of their world. Uh, Everything is awesome, which they all sing every day to celebrate this kind of rich rigidly formulaic society of orders that they all inhabit, this monoculture. Now to take over the Lego universe, Lord Business has displaced this wizard character, a sort of Gandalf-like character. (laughs) I mean, it's a mix of these highly recognizable corporate properties like Batman and Superman and Chewbacca and whatever. And actual Gandalf, who appears. And uh, yeah, Gandalf and... uh, Green Lantern. I think I even saw Ronald McDonald at one point, though I could be wrong. That was a little Easter egg. It's a mix of those and just generic Lego characters who are who are meant to be very symbolically archetypal, you know? There's a cop character who's just a cop character. The wizard character is really just a wizard character. But anyway, Lord Business displaced this wizard uh, whose name I'm forgetting right now. And the wizard, the wizard comes from this rather Randian group of characters called the Master Builders, who now <laughs> all live in this sort of cloud city. And the Master Builders consist of all those characters that you mentioned, guys like Superman. The wizard's name, just incidentally, is Vitruvius, which I assume is uh, inspired by the famous Roman architect uh, Vitruvius. Now, while just minding his own business and living his life, Emmett, this ultimate everyman, stumbles upon this mysterious Lego piece called the Peace of Resistance. And when he touches it, he blacks
blacks out. He wakes up to find himself under custody. This piece of resistance is stuck to him. He wasn't supposed to find this thing, but among the master builders, a prophecy was once foretold that someone would find this piece of resistance and, like Neo, become the one and <laughs> and help liberate this universe once again from uh, the forces of Lord Business. Now, importantly, Lord Business, we should talk a little bit about his designs. Lord Business keeps using the word craggle, which we learn is just a tube of glue where some of the letters have been scratched out. So it used to say crazy glue. Now it says craggle. The thing about Lord Business is that he wants to use the glue to make everything stick together. He doesn't want the different worlds to kind of cross pollinate. You know, he wants the pirate Lego to be its own thing. He wants the space Lego to be its own thing. He wants to put walls between the different universes. If I can just interject here for a second and digress uh, very quickly away from the movie. Since Christmas is coming up, all I could think of when I was watching this movie and hearing from Lord Business was that when I was a kid, I was not like the kid who we later meet in this movie at all. As a kid, I was Lord Business. For several of my earliest Christmases, the early earliest ones I remember, uh, my signature gift would, would be a big Lego set. That was my favorite toy. And I was really into pirate Lego. There was a kind of Islanders or something Lego, like Pacific Islanders. I really liked that. There was space Lego. And I had a big space in my room where all the Lego was. But I kept the different Lego worlds uniformly separate. And I hated, my brother used to come in, when he got a little older, he would come in and he would like put the space helmet on Redbeard or whatever, the captain of the pirate ship. I absolutely hated it. I know that the whole concept of Lego is supposed to be that you, you know, you mix and match, you build everything. I didn't like that at all. I wanted to keep everything, I wanted to keep the fictional uh, world separate, which I guess if we have any right-wing listeners, they might deduce from that, that I was always, you know, predisposed towards stifling collectivism or something like that. Yeah, I just hope to God you learned a lesson from this movie. (laughs) Revealing himself to possibly be the chosen one Emmett, the everyman, is abducted by this group of revolutionaries, including that uh, displaced uh, Morgan Freeman wizard character, as well as a character named Lucy, or Wildstyle, voiced by Elizabeth Banks, who's this, you know, cool freedom fighter type on behalf of the Master Builders, and her boyfriend is Batman voiced by Will Arnett, one of the master builders in this cloud universe. Right, so they go to somewhere called Cloud Cuckoo Land, which you get to by going to somewhere else called Middle Zealand, which is like Lego Lord of the Rings New Zealand. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how else to characterize it. It's not Lord of the Rings, but it's also not not Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And Cloud Cuckoo Land is above it. And you drive up a big rainbow to get there. And when you get to Cloud Cuckoo Land, all the properties are just kind of mashed together. This is kind of like where they ascend to like a heaven where all the gods are coexisting. And all the gods, major and minor, are just different properties mostly owned by by WB. And they have free roam up there. Like in this space of total metaphysical freedom in the universe of the Lego movie, all of the corporate properties just kind of mashed together. And one of them, that little uh, pink Hello Kitty character, whatever her name was, explains how there there are no rules in Cloud Cuckoo Land. Uh, There's no negativity allowed either, which seems like a rule to me. And there's basically no order. It's total anarchy. But everybody is extremely happy. Now, folks know where this is eventually going, don't they? There's going to be a melding of these two poles, somewhere between total order and total anarchy. 
key. That's where, that's where our everyman is eventually going to come in. Because even though we realize that the prophecy is bogus, even though we realize there is no chosen one, he reveals himself to be the chosen one because he's the one who can work in both of these worlds. He can create cuckoo, crazy, wacky, useless ideas where you throw a bunch of stuff together. But he can also get all the master builders to work together to engineer things of remarkable ingenuity. What really matters in the second half is that we find out that all of these Lego worlds are actually happening in the real world. We get a couple of live action segments where the Emmett character sort of falls out of the Lego world and falls onto the floor, and it's revealed that he's just a piece in a real world Lego collection owned by an adult Lego collector played by Will Ferrell, who also is the voice of Lord Business. And his son, who we find out is the real life version of Emmett, and that Emmett is his surrogate in this world. He wants to have fun in this enormous Lego universe that his father has built. His father has rigidly ordered this universe so that you've got the Western section here, you've got the city section here, the pirate section here, the Lord of the Rings section there. But the son wants to mash them all together because ultimately what Lego is about and why you should buy the product is because it's about letting your imagination roam free. Actually, it's a highly sophisticated interlocking brick system. But we bought it at the toy store. We did, but... The way I'm using it makes it an adult thing. The box for this one said ages 8 to 14. That's a suggestion. They have to put that on there. Can't expect me to be able to resist playing with all this. Look, you have your stuff over near the Christmas decorations. All those bricks, you can build anything you want. We're going to play a little game. It's called, Let's Put Everything Back the Way You Found It. Dad, you don't understand. So I can make things the way they're supposed to be. Permanently. And this is where the movie, I mean, this threw a curveball. This twist is absolutely amazing. Here I was ready to talk about, you know, another Ready Player One-ified movie. Uh, and it is that. But I think this movie fundamentally is kind of like the middle of a Venn diagram, each side of which represents different preoccupations we've had on this podcast. One of which is the Ready Player One-ification of culture. The other, which is films concerned with fatherhood and crisis. Yes. <laughs> which, incidentally, uh, if you're not subscribed to our Patreon and you sign up now, we're going to have an episode coming soon for Christmas on uh, Jingle All the Way, which we've been getting requests to do for years, which I think we're finally going to do. Like almost every film from the 90s, it would seem uh, a film about fatherhood in crisis. Anyway, so yes, it turns out that the real Lord business is just uh, the dad who is a grown man who plays with toys and wants, you know, like I did as a kid, wants the Lego universe, uh, the Lego city to maintain its sense of order. You know, no dragons on the top of the luxury condominium, nothing like that. And then uh, how does the film end, Will? There's an enormous climax where Lord business lashes out, wants to spray his crazy glue all over the Lego universe to finally keep it under control. But Emmett and Lord Lord Business eventually come to a detente. Lord Business is redeemed. He sees the error in his ways. In the real world, the boy and his father, Will Ferrell, enter into an agreement where they can collaborate on this big Lego world together. And the same thing happens in the Lego universe. It's very much like the end of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. <laughs> you know, that movie has a Lord Business character of its own, and there's the whole underclass that you spend the whole movie following them. You spend the whole movie wanting them to overturn this corrupt world, but then it ends with like the union leader shaking hands with Lord Business and saying, now don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out the uh, the solution to the crisis of the Weimar Republic is just corporatism after all. The directors of this movie, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Well, Phil Lord is like so annoying on Twitter. He was doing so much like red 
red baiting stuff about Bernie Sanders. Uh, <laughs> he's always like ringing alarm bells about communist countries. Uh, you know, <laughs> not a fan of what's happening in Venezuela right now. So I want to pursue that uh, in a moment because I have no, I can't remember anything else. But just in that, there's a lot to say about the politics of this film and the reaction to it. But first, I want to put the kind of Ready Player One aspect of it to rest a little bit. And I've got with me here uh, one of my favorite passages from Naomi Klein's book, No Logo, which I think is uh, germane to a lot of what we've been discussing uh, on this episode and also in our episode on Space Jam and in our episode on Ready Player One. So this is from uh, the beginning of chapter seven, which is called Mergers and Synergy, the Creation of Commercial Utopias. Um, Naomi Klein begins with this quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, where he was commenting on the future of poetry and art in a democratic society. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that he was not worried about a lapse into safe realism so much as a flight into unanchored fantasy. And de Tocqueville wrote, I fear that the productions of democratic poets may often be surcharged with immense and incoherent imagery, with exaggerated descriptions and strange creations, and that the fantastic beings of my brain may sometimes make us regret the world of reality. De Tocqueville's more conservative instincts coming out in that quote because he's talking about the world of democratic art, but he could just as easily be commenting on the world of kind of late capitalist commercial art. Klein continues, We are surrounded now by the realization of Tocqueville's predictions, gleaming bulbous golden arches, impossibly smooth backlit billboards, squishy cartoon characters roaming fantastically fake theme parks. When I was growing up, these strange creations awakened something in me that I've since come to think of as a deep longing for the seductions of the fake. I wanted to disappear into shiny, perfect, unreal objects. Just skipping ahead a bit. Cartoons and fast food franchises speak to children in a voice too seductive for mere mortal parents to compete with. Every kid wants to hold a piece of the cartoon world between their fingers. That's why the licensing of television and movie characters for toys, cereals, and lunchboxes has spawned a 16.1 billion annual industry. God, I wonder, I wonder what that figure is today. Much, much bigger. It is also why so-called family entertainment companies have been going to greater and greater lengths to extend their television and movie fantasies into real-world experiential extravaganzas, branded museum exhibits, high-tech superstores, and the old standard theme parks. Back in the 1930s, Walt Disney, the grandfather of modern synergy, understood the desire to crawl inside the screen when he fantasized about building a self-enclosed Disney city and remarked that every Mickey Mouse product or toy doubled as an advertisement for his cartoons. Mattel has long grasped this as well, but if Disney's project has been extending the fantasy of its films into toys, then Mattel's was extending its toys into ever more elaborate fantasy worlds. This vision is perhaps best understood as the Zen of Barbie. Barbie is one... Barbie is all things. Which is to say that the corporate synergy mania consuming so much of pop culture today is not at all new. Barbie and Mickey Mouse are miniature branding trailblazers. Those two have always wanted more extensions for their brands, more lateral monopolies to control. Uh, and then there's just one more passage uh, a few paragraphs later I want to read about Disney World. So she's already mentioned the branded city Walt Disney wanted to create, and she continues, When Walt Disney first conceived of a branded city, it was meant to be an artificiality bonanza, a temple to the mid-50s futuristic gods of technology and automation. The city never was built in Walt's lifetime, though some of the ideas went to the Epcot Center 16 years after his death. When Walt Disney CEO Michael Eisner decided to pick up on Walt's old dream and build a branded town, he opted against the Jetsons-inspired fantasy world his predecessor had imagined. Though wired with every modern technology and convenience, celebration is less futurism than homage, an idealized recreation of the livable America that existed before malls, big box sprawl, freeways, amusement 
amusement parks and mass commercialization. Oddly enough, Celebration is not even a sales vehicle for Mickey Mouse licensed products. It is, in contemporary terms, an almost Disney-free town. No doubt the only one left in America. In other words, when Disney finally reached its fully enclosed, synergized, self-sufficient space, it chose to create a pre-Disneyfied world. Its calm, understated aesthetics are the antithesis of the cartoon world for sale down the freeway at Disney World. Like the gated communities that have sprung up across the United States, on Celebration's tranquil, tree-lined, billboard-free streets, inhabitants are not subject to any of the stimulations or ravages of contemporary life. No Levi Strauss has bought up the storefronts on Main Street to sell a new style of wide-legged pants, and no graffiti artists have defaced the ads. No Walmart has left the downtown boarded up and twisted, and no community group has formed to fight the big boxes. No factory closures have eroded the tax base and pumped up the welfare rolls, and no quarrelsome critics are around to point any fingers. What is most striking about Celebration, however, particularly when compared with most North American suburban communities, is the amount of public space it offers. Parks, communal buildings, and village squares. In a way, Disney's branding breakthrough is a celebration of brandlessness, of the very public spaces the company has always been so adept at getting its brands on in the rest of its endeavors. So this has always been one of the most memorable passages from No Logo to me. There is something so incredibly powerful about the idea of Disney finally building this city. The ur-corporate cultural tycoon Walt Disney imagined building a Disney city. And when it finally was built in Celebration, Florida, it manifests as a kind of brand-free zone. Like the brand is so hegemonic that when you actually enter the city, the Disney brand is, you know, is not actually on things. It's in fact the very city that we find at the beginning of the Lego movie where, you know, the posters advertising music just say like popular music group and everything just has a generic title because it's all within the world of Lego. This sounds great. This is why we should turn all this stuff over to the private sector. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that this marvelous passage from Naomi Klein is very of its time. I think the argument she's making here is absolutely still correct. I think we've just moved on to an even further stage of dystopia with this stuff. You know, like we're living in the Matrix, but the Matrix is also Inception and there are many levels. So as we've talked about with films like Ready Player One and Space Jam A New Legacy, another marker of a film like this is they always have a populist subtext. It's always the rebellion of like fandom and like the characters themselves against some version of the man. In this case, uh, Lord Business, who turns out to just be an overbearing father who plays with Legos. But the other thing about this type of movie is at the end of the day, you're still talking about a whole bunch of corporate properties who in the universe of the films, I will reiterate, are not really playing themselves. They're playing themselves as corporate properties. And so when we get to Cloud Cuckoo Land in this film, which is, you know, the height of freedom, freedom is just all these properties being mashed together. This has been the conclusion of, you know, Ready Player One. This is how Space Jam A New Legacy ends as well. You know, this is the other hallmark of this type of film. And so at the beginning of the movie, Emmett, the Chris Pratt character, you know, the everyman construction worker, he's already living in Celebration, Florida. But then at the end of the movie, when he escapes from Celebration, Florida, you know, he thinks he's escaping the Matrix, but actually he's just waking up from the game of Second Life that he was playing in the Matrix. Anyway, it's not out yet, but I have a piece coming for Jacobin uh, where I try to develop these ideas a little further. I mean, it feels incredibly goofy to... (laughs) 
<laughs> to talk about the Lego movie this way. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a movie that actually comes to us served on a platter as a piece of pure ideology because it is, <laughs> it is after all, a feature-length commercial. You know, it's a movie that's saying you've got to break out of the monoculture. You've got to let your imagination roam free. And the way to do it is through our product, Lego. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's right, like, it's exactly. like, don't, don't, don't get any other fucking toys in there. Like, mash up all these universes all you want, but don't put any fucking Jenga pieces in there because then it's going to be a problem. <laughs> right, right. And that's what's so funny about some of the reactions to this film, which is where I want to turn next because, believe it or not, I think there is arguably even more fruitful territory for discussion here. Hollywood pushing its anti-business message to our kids. First, it was the Muppets movie. Remember, they used an oil baron as the enemy. A year later, it was the Lorax, a casting environmentalist against anyone who dared to create a new business. And, well, now it's the Lego movie with the villain named President Business. This movie, of course, came out in 2014. And let's just say elicited some ire from uh, the right wing of American politics. The reception to this movie was quite divided in a way that I think is very funny. So Glenn Beck actually quite liked this movie, okay? And he called it, quote, tremendous storytelling and great for the whole family without the double meanings and adult humor that I just hate. It was truly brilliant. I took everyone on my staff one afternoon to see it. So after, after Glenn Beck and his staff finished, you know, another, another day of toil throwing uh, chicken entrails onto a sundial or whatever he was doing in 2014. Uh, they went to go see the Lego movie, which is very funny to me. I've got a review here by Armand White, who is now the critic for the National Review. And, you know, he's come up on the podcast before. Armand White is just like a notorious contrarian critic. <laughs> you know, he like he's he's minimally useful because his ideology is not the most coherent in the world. He's always uh, zagging where the culture zigs just by reflex. But he did like this movie. He was with the Rotten Tomatoes consensus on this movie. And he had a review where the headline was, The Lego Movie's Capitalist Tour de Force Restores Satire to Animation. He said it actively rejects the totalitarian implications of such technological wonders as Pixar. Even the Lego movie's plot is anti-Pixar. Lego man protagonist Emmett, a construction worker who envies becoming a master builder, ponders his identity as well as his conformist society. Any animated film that goes against the placid, pretty perfectionism of Pixar has to be a work of political opposition. And the Lego movie's first two thirds is a reminder of how irreverent and nonpartisan political satire used to be. <laughs> millennial, millennial conformity is attacked in Emmett's anxious need for instruction. He seeks a manual for life that will confirm how to fit in, be liked, be happy. That cowardly affirmation could be the motto for film critics as well as Pixar drones. Uh... <laughs> The Beehive Society's national anthem cheers everything is awesome to a manic incessant beat. Forced complacency, bracket, unconscious hegemony, bracket, distracts the toy proletariat who worship an idealized leader, president business, soon revealed as the nefarious micromanaging ruler of the subconscious. So essentially, Armand White sees the film as a rejoinder to the conformity and zombie-like nature of America under Obama. What else do you have from the right? <laughs> it's very funny that the sort of cultural right received the movie in that way. I mean, I guess it doesn't surprise me too much that uh, somebody writing at National Review would say that. But let's just say that the business wing of the right uh, really did not like this movie. Just to read here from uh, an article in the Washington Post from uh, May 28th, 2015, entitled Senator Ron Johnson does not think everything is awesome. 
Senator Ron Johnson, Republican Wisconsin, is not a fan of the Lego movie. He does not think it is awesome. The Wisconsin senator said Wednesday that the film intentionally uses an evil entrepreneur as its main villain in order to spread anti-business propaganda. The remarks made during an appearance... <laughs> at the Milwaukee Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce were part of a broader comment on what he sees as an anti-business bias in American culture. That's done for a reason, he said. They're starting that propaganda and it's insidious. Johnson's comments, of course, actually represent a long-standing anti-LEGO movie sentiment that persists among some conservatives. Uh, consider, for example, the Fox Business segment below that accuses Hollywood of having an anti-capitalist agenda or this Wall Street Journal op-ed, which Johnson himself quoted. Now, uh, there's not too much to be said about this. Ron Johnson had the most bird-brained reaction to this movie, which is just that there's like an antagonist who's called Lord Business. And, you know, so it's it's an anti-business movie. Incidentally, I, the idea of a United States senator going to like their local chamber of commerce and starting, starting ranting about the Lego movie is so funny to me. Like imagine you're some just rapacious local business baron and you go and you want to hear about like the latest tax cuts you're going to get or whatever, or like the latest regulations that are going to be gutted and like you're so excited to hear about how it's soon going to be legal to like monetize your workforce by turning them into wi-fi hotspots or something and then this guy just starts ranting about the lego movie uh anyway so ron johnson was apparently inspired by this op-ed in the wall street journal uh, it's by a guy called doug haig it's called business is hollywood bogeyman and i just want to go out with this as a kind of michael and us reading series because i feel like it perfectly brings together the two components of lego movie which are the ready player oneification of culture so kind of corporate monopoly and convergence culture on the one hand and the crisis of fatherhood on the other because let me tell you folks this op-ed has both of those things and i'm not going to tell you uh, who the author is because that's going to be made abundantly clear soon enough the Lego Movie didn't win an Academy Award last weekend, nor was it even nominated for Best Animated Feature. But its half-billion-dollar box office success means that its impact has already been accounted for. Tens of millions of children have been influenced by the evil exploits of its villain, President Business. The movie that did win the Oscar in the animated feature category, Big Hero 6, which centers in part on a sinister technology company. These are children's movies, so they have plenty of laughs and characters to root for. Yet their appeal is also what makes them unsettling. Hollywood's message demonizing business is nothing new, but its delivery of this message to children through animated movies, which are easier and more profitable to produce than ever, is especially strong these days. The family film genre is one of the few not squeezed in the beleaguered movie industry, which was down 5% in 2014, according to the movie industry data site, thenumbers.com, while family-friendly fare rated G and PG increased 7%. As the president of the energy company Mansfield and the father of six and seven year old children both of whom loved animated movies i have found that these characterizations hit me particularly hard they prompt my children to view me not as the leader i'm supposed to be but as a movie villain incarnate <laughs> <laughs> so yeah in the mo in this movie the, uh this guy who's the president of an energy company you know he's will ferrell he's lord business <laughs> I mean, he's literally the villain. There's a lot of paternal anxiety uh, coming into this piece, which is also anguished about the film's supposed anti-capitalist message, which we'll come to in a sec. Anyway, he continues, A large body of academic research points to the notable impact that such messaging has on impressionable children. These anti-business themes reflect a general misperception about the role of business in society. Business leaders themselves are well positioned to clear things up. They have a clear understanding of the benefits of the free enterprise system that ivory tower economists generally... <laughs> Sorry. 
that ivory tower economists generally can't resonantly explain and the journalists don't intellectually clarify. There are numerous basic economic principles, including job creation, wage growth, and labor force participation that business leaders should make a bigger effort to explain to their employees. That might at least help push back against the overwhelming message in society proponed by many politicians, pundits, and cultural influencers that wealth is a zero-sum game, a fixed pie, the scraps of which are to be fought over by management, employees, and customers while being refereed by the government. The current obsession over income inequality epitomizes this thinking. I like uh, I like the work that the current obsession over income inequality uh, uh, is doing there. I'm sorry to hear you had such a bad time at the Lego movie. I mean, it, it's there to please. It's there to show you a good time. But it really sent this man on a dark night of the soul. Yeah, buddy, I'm sorry that uh, your kids are unhappy with you after seeing the Lego movie. <laughs> and my wife left me. <laughs> anyway, he just continues in this vein for a few more paragraphs and he's talking about what business leaders can do to, you know, combat the uh, anti-capitalist character of Hollywood. He says they should explain how this process of free, mutually beneficial exchange makes both parties richer, growing the size of the pie, not just of taking a bigger slice at someone else's expense. Maybe if more parents had these idea in mind, it would prompt some thoughtful discussions on the way home from watching the latest business bashing entertainment at the multiplex. <laughs> now, so I love how the final uh, sentence of this piece refers specifically to conversations on the way home from the multiplex because I'm just imagining this energy company Baron driving his kids home from seeing the Lego movie and then being like daddy what's a capitalist what's the expropriation of surplus value I am really not convinced by the antipathy that this film seems to have drawn from some sections anyway of American conservatism because the politics of this movie such as they are I think very much represent a sort of like tea party conception of capitalism I mean this film imagines a kind of classless society as its version of liberation like where you know everything can be mashed together people are you know free to build and create but it's ultimately the Thatcherite version of a classless society right I mean the Chris Pratt character Emma who's supposed to be this everyman, what the film is really saying is that his whole arc is that he's an idiot, but he finds out that he has this wellspring of creativity inside him, which allows him, like everybody else... To pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Right, exactly. I mean, this film is like... This film isn't taking aim at capitalism at all. It's taking aim at a kind of imagined, you know, monopoly capitalism. And, And like a lot of things in this vein, it imagines a kind of populist alternative, which is still nevertheless a capitalist one. Can I just add that this particular critical reception came out at a moment when critical reactions like this were very common and popular in the right-wing media about very innocuous entertainments. (laughs) Good good thing that's no longer the case. (laughs) It felt newer at the time. I remember in 2011 when the Muppet movie with Jason Segel in it came out. There was a day-long news cycle on Fox News about how anti-business the plot of the movie was. And the plot of that movie was a bog-standard plot about the Muppets have to get their studio back, but the studio is going to be raised by this evil developer. Bog-standard plot, the same plot that Happy Gilmore had 20 years earlier. But for a day on Fox News, it became this story about how Hollywood wants to indoctrinate your children into thinking that business is bad. I remember there was also like a half-day news cycle that didn't quite catch fire during the 2012 election. The Dark Knight Rises hadn't come out yet, but they were thinking, is there something we can do with the word Bane and Bane Capital? 
Rush Limbaugh had a whole broadcast where he said, do you think it's a coincidence that the villain is named Bane? This is liberal Hollywood wanting to slander Mitt Romney. It's a lot of brain dead people, entertainment, the pop culture crowd, and they're going to hear Bane in the movie and they're going to associate Bane. And the thought is that when they start paying attention to the campaign later in the year and Obama, the Democrats keep talking about Bane, not Bane Capital, but Bane, Romney and Bane that these people will think back to the Batman movie. Oh, yeah, I know who that is. Right. As part of the extremely leftist radical film, The Dark Knight Rises, which is about the dangers of what happens in a world without cops. This sounds so ridiculous when I say it, but I swear to God that this was actually something that circulated in mainstream right-wing media for a day in 2012, to the point that the comic book writer who created the character of Bane had to come out and say, I'm a Tea Party Republican. Uh, I... <laughs> Oh my God, that's incredible. Incidentally, Senator Ron Johnson was, I believe, running for re-election in 2014, and his Democratic opponent actually brought up his comments on the Lego movie and campaigning against him. To no effect, I should add, Ron Johnson was re-elected and more recently became an ally in Donald Trump's efforts to uh, say that the election was stolen and has been aggressively pushing anti-voting rights stuff in Wisconsin. But ju just to return to this argument for a moment that the film is anti-business, which like I said, I think is ridiculous. Will Ferrell so clearly represents big government. I mean, he literally is like big government paternalism. I mean, he quite literally, in the sense that he is, he is a literal father who by his own hand is trying to keep everything in this world rigidly structured and planned. He's trying to suppress the capital-owning democracy that might flourish if only everybody was allowed to become a master builder and regulations were stripped away. Well, the central premise of this movie is basically Atlas Shrugged. It's saying that there's this caste, this class of genius creators who, if society lost them, we would never fully be able to recover. They've all gone off into their own little world and uh, society has a void in its soul because it doesn't have this preternaturally gifted cast of master builders. Yeah, imagine if we reined in the master builders at uh, Pfizer and Moderna. I mean, fair enough, we might not be headed into year three of a uh, pandemic that seems like it will never end, but wouldn't it be awful if the paternalist hand of big government came in and stifled all that innovation? Skies, bouncy springs, we just named two awesome things. A Nobel Prize, a piece of string, you know what's awesome? Everything! Everything is awesome.